California Frontier Podcast, Episode 6. The California Frontier Podcast is dedicated to helping you explore the Golden State's unique history, culture, and environment. I'm Damian Bassage, and I'm your host. going to hear the first of a two-part interview that I did with Marie-Christine Dugan. Now, Dr. Dugan is a professor of global economic history and a historian of economic ideas at Keene State College in New Hampshire. And in the first part of my conversation with her, we're going to talk about the California missions and her early research into that subject. I think some of the things she's going to say are really going to open your mind about what the missions were and how they operated. And they challenge some of the ideas that many of us have about that time period. So I really hope that you enjoy our conversation, and I hope that you'll feel free to let me know what you think. On a side note, we are going to talk about some more mature themes related to mission life, so this episode may not be entirely appropriate for elementary school children. So just keep that in mind. With that said, I hope you enjoy this interview with Marie Christine Dugan. Marie, thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Uh, this is I'm really excited to to talk to you and hear a little bit about what you uh, do and what you're working on. I've read I've read articles you've written. I read your um, book on the Chumash and the Presidio of Santa Barbara. I've, I've heard talks that you've given at uh, missions conferences, so it's really exciting to me to talk to you about what you're working on. If, um, if you don't mind, would you mind giving me a little bit of an idea about your background and, and what got you into working on early California, Spanish-era California? Sure. Um well, let's see. I live in New Hampshire now, and I teach economics. And uh, I started out working on the missions in around 1995. I was in graduate school, and I kind of left what my teach. You know, you're supposed in graduate school. You're supposed to pick a professor and kind of become their disciple. And I respected a lot of my professors, but I hadn't really felt that kind of total buy-in to what any one of them were doing. And so I wanted to take a year to sort of sort it all out. And I also think I liked the most that we had studied was economic history. And I was really interested in the transition to capitalism in California. That's what everybody was doing in my graduate program, the transition to capitalism. And all the other students were from other countries. And so they they said, so what are you going to do, Marie? <laughs> and I said, well, I'm going to do the transition to capitalism in California. And and this is at UC Berkeley, you mentioned. No, no, I went to Berkeley High School. Ah, okay, sorry. But then I left the, the West Coast and went to college at Tufts University That's and right. then graduate school at the New School for Social Research in New York City. And the New School for Social Research is really unconventional. We have a really unconventional approach to economics. We spend a lot of time reading the history of economic ideas. Uh, I studied Adam Smith with Robert Heilbrunner 
he's written a book called The Worldly Philosophers that a lot of people have read. It's like the, the best read book in economics that came out in 1953. And I studied a lot of Karl Marx's ideas and John Maynard Keynes ideas. So it was kind of like an economic philosophy program. Um, but then I was trying to sort it all out. And so I went to Mexico for a year um, and I found documents in the Archivo Nacional de la, Archivo General de la Nación in Mexico City, the AGN. It's a big old prison <laughs> and each of the cells is piled high with documents. And um, I found two sorts of documents. One was trials of Indians for murder on the missions. And that was really eye-opening for issues of social control. And what it showed is what the tensions inside missions were about, were about conforming to Catholic morality, which actually shouldn't be a big surprise because that's sort of what the tension is inside Catholic institutions all over the world, right? And the big issue was, would Indians stay married or could they get divorced? And of course, in the Catholic world, you couldn't get divorced. And on the missions, the marriages had often been arranged by the priests. So it came to be that in many cases, Indians wanted to get out of the relationship. And the only way to get out was to have a death of the spouse. And so these were like three or four different stories of um, where one spouse had killed another in order to get out of the relationship. Wow. And what I found absolutely fascinating is that they were an inside view of mission life and there was Indian testimony. And of course the Indian testimony was written in Spanish, but nonetheless, this was like far more, you know, honest about what was actually happening in missions than anything I had ever seen. Like one of the things that came out really quickly is that hardly any of the Spanish soldiers could write because they would always pick one guy to be the escribano who would take notes during the whole proceeding. Mm. And, and it became clear that the reason that Indians were pushed into a central location for a, a village was because of the social control that a village provides. You know, these were two missionaries and they wanted everybody to abide by a set of rules that was foreign to them. And the only way you can really effectively get people to abide by a new set of rules is to have a certain amount of buy-in. And one way you get the buy-in is to have the community pressure you. Right? All of us are more susceptible to pressure from other people in the community. So that was really eye-opening for me. And um, that's a chapter in my dissertation. And I, I never got to publish it. I tried to publish it. Um, in a journal called the William and Mary quarterly, mm -hmm. but they just weren't interested. And, you know, a lot of scholars would just turn around and submit it to another publication. But I think at that time I was trying to juggle becoming an economics professor and raising two babies. And so that one still, I think it was very helpful for me. And then it also was so interesting to read those that I could, I was teaching myself Spanish as I went. I already spoke Italian because my, my family had lived in Italy when I was 16. So it wasn't that hard for me to learn Spanish. It was kind of like search and replace. Now my Italian's gone to hell. But <laughs> it was, it, so 
when I was in Mexico, I was only in Mexico for six months, and I talked myself into the advanced class at UNAM, the Universidad Nacional Autónoma de México, which is the big, huge public institution with 60,000 people, kind of like UC Berkeley, but in Mexico City. Right. And I, I, I pushed myself into the advanced class, and then I was translating these documents at the archive. So my dissertation advisors really didn't want me to find you know, trials about Indians for murder and sex and social control. They wanted me to write about the economy. So I also found account books of things imported to the missions from Mexico City for a period of 60 years, no, 40 years, a period of 40 years, 1769 to 1810. And so I then brought those home and, you know, I spent a lot of nights carefully writing in, you know, one bar of soap, <laughs> one peso you know, bottle of wine, 30 pesos. And I eventually computerized three account books, one for Mission in Santa Clara, one from La Purisima, and one, I, I didn't quite get to the end, but I was working on San Diego. I actually did San, San Jose too. San Jose was founded late in the day, so there wasn't that much for San Jose. But Santa Clara and La Purisima and San Diego are all pretty inside. They, again, the account books were fascinating because they showed you something about life inside the missions. You know, where a lot of times people write about missions from the outside. But how were missionaries spending their money? You know, for example, there were no weapons. And I guess I had expected there to be. You know, sometimes the mission had one rifle and they would have poison for poisoning coyotes that were eating the sheep. Um, but that's... What, what they really spent their money on was clothing. Uh, and I think the marker of, a, of an Indian being Christian was clothing. And though Indians hadn't worn clothes in California before, so you'd think, like, what would they care? They actually did like clothing. Clothing was popular, um, and it was this marker. So it, they spent a lot of their money on clothing. And then they also spent a lot of their money on giant cauldrons for cooking food for the whole community. Wow. So I published a, an article about that in the um, Pacific Historical Review in 2016. And you can really see how in different decades, they're importing different things. Like initially, they don't make any cloth at the missions. And later they do. And after a while, they start having the equipment for doing blacksmithing on the missions. A lot of people don't realize that Indians were blacksmiths. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and certainly... You know, by the 1820s, Indians were making lances and many other things. Um, so they were pretty good blacksmiths. But even earlier, there was already a smith. And um, there were cowboys. The cowboys got special equipment. I mean, this is also something I think I've come to realize over time, that there were, there were sort of Indian militias on, on missions. You know, the military and the missionaries didn't get along very well, and the missionaries preferred to have a group of soldiers that were loyal to them and to the Indian congregation. So there were a group of soldiers who were on horseback who had spurs and kind of, you know, that they had hats. They, they, they had their own outfits, and it was, it was a big deal. One of the murders that I had read about was a, an Indian cowboy, you know, and it was a little hard 
for his wife, I think, because he was a respected member of the community and he could come and go as he wished. I mean, he had to request permission, but he would get permission. She, she knew he was going to murder her if she was outside the mission because he was having a relationship with another woman. That was um, near San Luis Obispo. And um, he would have trysts in Morro Bay with um, the woman he really loved. So that, that whole, I guess for me, that's, what, that's what's interesting about, it, it's hard work to study account books and it takes a long time before you, you see enough of a pattern for it to be interesting. You know, I analyzed those in 1995 to 2000, and then I didn't publish a big article about it till 2016. And, you know, that is partly because I was busy because I had the kids and I am a single mom. But it's also because it took a long time to make sense of what I was seeing. It wasn't what I'd expected to see. And one of the things was that the accounts ended in 1810. And so I realized that what missions were before 1810 and what missions were after 1810 were totally different things. A lot like in the United States, you know, if you think of an institution like public education, like UC Berkeley. So before 1980, there was a social consensus that the state would fund it. And it's one sort of institution. And since 1980 and 2019, you know, there's less and less government support. So we act as if it's still UC Berkeley, but it's really transformed what it is, right? Because students who go there now have to pay a lot of money. So even if it's not as expensive as Stanford, it's still expensive, which it really wasn't in the 70s. In the 70s, it was hard to go because it was hard to get in. It was, you know, you couldn't have a full-time job while you were there, and that was a hardship. But so to talk about public higher education is being, we talk about it as if it's the same thing, but it's really different before and after 1980. And 1981 is when I graduated from high school. So I think I'm always really interested in that, how a big break in the way society is run can cause a lot of transformation that can be hidden. And that's really what happens at the missions. Before 1810, they're state funded and subsidized and life on missions is kind of slow. And the big criticism is that the Indians aren't learning Spanish fast enough. And one guy in Mexico, Ricard, he said, he wasn't writing about California, he was writing about, you know, missions inside Mexico. But he says, the reason missionaries never taught Indians Spanish very well is because so long as the Indians only spoke their own language and the missionary was the only person who spoke their language among the Spanish, then he had a lot of power and influence. And once the Indians learned Spanish, the missionary was going to be a less important person. So, so this criticism is coming from the military and the civil authorities. It's not coming from the Franciscans themselves. They're happy if they're not learning Spanish, is what you're saying. It was not a high priority for them. Right. And they actually have catechisms that are written in the indigenous language. You see the, I, I forget which mission that's from. Um, I think John Johnson has written about that, but I'm not a specialist in that, you know, but the, it was not important, right? It, it was, I wouldn't want to say it's not important at all, but it was a low priority. And as long as the Indians didn't speak Spanish, the missionary was, you know, 
they had to go through the missionary to deal with the Spanish, but I think more importantly, the Spanish had to go through the missionary to deal with the Indians. And, right. you know, that, that, that brings up what's a little bit of a problem with our current, I mean, one of the great, right now I work a lot with Mexican historians and Latin American historians in general, and they really don't deal with the subaltern. They don't, they really rarely write about native peoples, what they felt about a situation or what their experience was. So it is a great strength of the U.S. historiography that we have really focused on what was going on with the Indians. But there's something um, that we kind of miss, which is that the missions really, missionaries were strong if they got along well with the Indians. You know, if, if hundreds of Indians were intensely loyal to a missionary and he was the only one that spoke their language, well, then he was very powerful. So that was the case, for example, with Antonio Peyri at um, Mission San Luis Rey. So he must have been there for about 30 years and he was very powerful and nobody messed with him. And he was the priest that brought uh, Pablo Tac to, or took him and um, Agapito Amamix from San Luis Rey and sent them to Rome. Yes, that's right. Interesting. That's right. He seems to have been an enlightened person. And there's also not very many letters. Like, I'd, I'd love to know more about who he was. And actually, on a side note, I actually went to his hometown in Catalonia, huh. um, which was really interesting. It actually turns out there's three different California missionaries that were all from this tiny little place called Porrera, which is in wine country. It's these steep, dry um, tiny towns. And um, he, he was from there. And, but you really can't, there's not very many letters that he wrote. In fact, that's one of the reasons I went to that town is I was hoping somebody was going to say, Oh, here's a box of letters that he wrote from California. And right. actually that would have been great. That would have been great. Yeah. His, uh, one of his descendants said that there was some attack on the Catalan people at some point and her grandmother had burned all the letters. Great. So she, there were letters, but anyway, I don't know if that story's true, but that's what they told me. Um, so, but that idea that, um, what made missionaries powerful was if they did get along with Indians. So there were missionaries who did not get along with Indians, but they were not powerful. And, and they were not all getting along with Indians in the way of Peyri. Like Peyri seems to have considered Pablo Tac and Agapito Amamix as his children. And he seems to have been closer to the, um, to the people of that, that town, Pala, than he was to Spaniards. Right? This was his life. And I think he says that when he goes back to Spain. He says, I'm sorry I ever came back here. It was a mistake because this really isn't my country anymore. But... Um, but even like at, at Mission San Luis Obispo, um, Luis, oh gosh, I don't know why I can't remember his name. Luis Martinez, Father Luis Martinez. Okay, I don't think he was a particularly enlightened man, and I don't think he felt particularly close to Indians, but he 
which would have been the northern Chumash at his mission. But he was powerful because he had a militia of northern Chumash people that would go with him into battle. And at that, when he was a missionary, there was near civil war behind the mission. And so he, he was really, you know, I'm sure he was involved in a few atrocities back there. Well, I don't know if he was, I guess I shouldn't say I'm sure, but that wouldn't surprise me. But he was also very close to the Indians that, I mean, close, not in a personal friendship way, but in that, that his relationship with these men who fought for him was very important to him. And I'm sure that he invested a lot of the money he made with exports in maintaining that relationship. Um, and later there was a time when people wanted to break up the missions to take the land of the Indian congregations, because basically the land of the Indian congregations was promised to them at baptism. That was one of the big incentives for, for baptizing is that the military could not settle your land if you entered Christianity. Um, but after 1810, when Spain lost its financing, the military was no longer paid. Okay, so the question was, were the authorities going to honor the promise made to the Indians saying that your land will not be taken from you if you get baptized? Or were the authorities going to give land to the now unpaid soldiers so that they could have a little ranch for their family? That's the big, that's the big issue in 1810. And it really, how it played out really depended a lot on the local situation. So Payde fought really hard to keep the land for the Indians, which also wasn't that hard for him to do because Mission San Luis Rey is very far from the soldiers at San Diego and the soldiers at Santa Barbara, right? It's kind of right in the middle. It's about as far as you can get. Now, San, San Luis Obispo was also pretty far from Monterey and also Santa Barbara. So they, they were able to protect more. But one reason that eventually people wanted to get those two missionaries out was so they could break up Mission San Luis Rey's land and Mission San Luis Obispo land. Because something people don't realize is that the land area of missions was the size of modern counties. Right. Right. I think people think of missions as this small little quadrangle that you like you would see today when you visit a mission. You think, well, the mission is this yeah. is this little little farm of one or two acres. Yeah, that's what people think. I even had this article I submitted to get published once, and it was about a conflict between Nieto who was one of the few military men given a large land grant in Los Angeles. And it was a conflict between him and the Indians of Mission San Gabriel. And Nieto's ranch was kind of towards the ocean compared to Mission San Gabriel. But the mission Indians, well, the missionary wrote that the Indians did not have enough food if they had to give that land to Nieto because you couldn't use all of the land for growing crops. Right, because this was a time when there was kind of it was difficult to irrigate, right? So you really had to use the land right next to a river. The, any land that was suitable for growing crops right next to a river was like the highest value land. And the missionary from San Gabriel said giving this plot of land on a river to Nieto was just too much, especially because the Pueblo of Los Angeles was to another direction next to San Gabriel. So he said, We already have all these 
military, retired military guys setting up farms on irrigated land near us. And now you want us to give the other direction to Nieto, and it's just not possible. And there were bitter arguments about this. And um, anyway, when I submitted it for publication, one of the reviewers said, well, this, this could not possibly be true because the place where Nieto's ranch was too far for Mission San Gabriel to, for, for that conflict to have taken place. And that was kind of eye-opening for me because I had not realized people didn't get that, that the mission isn't just the church that we go to today, right? Mission San Gabriel. The mission was this, when Indians communities accepted baptism, they brought their lands with them. So the mission expanded. Every time people baptized, the mission expanded. That That is an interesting concept. I think people, well, I certainly hadn't thought about the fact that new people entering the mission are bringing their lands with them and expanding the mission lands, therefore. And every now and then you get these conflicts where people from one Indian village, usually people from one Indian village would all go to the same mission and they would all get baptized kind of reasonably close together. You know, the family made a decision about this. But if there, there are a couple times where people go or maybe two communities really close to each other and historically connected. One goes to one mission and one goes to the other. So then there are boundary disputes between the missionaries, you know, and one will say, well, this land belongs to this mission because we have these people in it. And the other one will say, well, no, that land belongs to this mission because we have these people in it. So I, I guess that's how I figured out that that's how that works. But I never wrote that up. That's the end of part one of my interview with Marie-Christine Dugan. Wasn't that fascinating? I am really interested and intrigued by what she has to say about the relationships amongst the people on the missions, especially, of course, the relationships between Indian people and the priests, the relationships also between the military and the missionaries, and those conflicts. There's so much there, and there's so much to learn about this fascinating time. And I think that you're really going to enjoy the second half of my interview with her, where we speak more about mission life, but also about the military and the relationships of California with the Far East, a relationship both cultural and economic that goes back many centuries and, as you know, continues on to this day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the California Frontier Podcast. If you liked what you heard, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the California Frontier Project website at www.californiafrontier.net. If you have a question, a comment, or a suggestion, make sure and drop me a line at damian at californiafrontier.net.